Tax time is around the corner, and it always reminds me of the same thing. I hate math. This industry requires us to be so good at so many things, it's overwhelming. Fortunately, we don't have to do the number crunching alone. Over at Yelp for Restaurants, the, let's call them math enthusiasts, can help you tackle the numbers that impact your business with cutting-edge software that tracks guest numbers, check sizes, and much more. Visit restaurants.yelp.com for more information on the tools that can get you off the computer and back on the floor. Now here we go. It starts there with instilling good habits in the team because you can give them great recipes. You can give them costing sheets that say, hey, here are the markers that you need to hit. But it's all about the people, training the people, getting them to understand that consistency in execution is the way to do it every single day. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Che Ramos is quickly becoming a household name within our industry. His efforts to create an inclusive environment within the beverage industry are what initially sparked my interest. But once he had my attention, I was floored by the amount of value he was providing across every digital platform. In today's conversation, we tackle diversity, inclusion, education, and what it takes to make a damn good drink. I think the typical path for a lot of people in the restaurant industry is you come in wherever you can get in, right? You come in as a host, you come in as a dishwasher, whatever, whatever. Either you go the server path or you go the bar path. I went the bar path. And then out here in North Carolina, people do that for a decade, maybe, and then they get into real estate, right? (laughs) Which is, (laughs) I took a different turn, not remarkably dissimilar, but I spent almost two decades in the industry doing everything that you can do. Most of that time was behind the stick and in management. And then I just developed a love for all things beverage related during that time, right? It all started when I was about 25 years old, I was a server at a restaurant where a very famous NBA and college coach's agent came up to have dinner with one of his clients in the area. And they left two bottles of half-finished Ornelia on the table. So my boss calls me over. He's like, hey, man, you're 25. You're never going to get anywhere near anything like this for quite a (laughs) while. You need to get in here and try this. And actually, it wasn't two bottles of Ornelia. It was one of Ornelia, one Sasakaya. I tried glasses of each of those, and it was an experience, right? I was 25 in my spare time. I was running around drinking Incredible Hulks and God knows what other abominations back in the early 2000s. And I remember that. that... <laughs> I'm I sorry if you do. I wish I didn't. I Right? Uh, Tokyo <laughs> Tees, adios motherfuckers. I remember those yeah, things. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it introduced me to the idea that a drink can be an experience, right? Four ounces. Those four ounces that I tried are forever going to be etched in my memory. I remember exactly where I was. I remember who was there. I remember everything short of exactly what I was wearing and all that good stuff. 
but it led me down a rabbit hole to try and recreate that experience and hopefully not have to spend $2,000 a bottle to do it. And it's just been a fascinating journey ever since then that led me to eventually wanting to get out of the industry for a number of reasons, but to stay adjacent, to continue to do the thing that I love doing, but not necessarily within the confines of a brick and mortar. And I think that your life, your profession is a really interesting study in branding because this is an industry where nobody takes a step forward, right? Everyone knows the name of your restaurant. Nobody knows your name. Everybody knows the name of your bar. Nobody knows your name. And that's not the path that you chose to take. You wanted to stand as the brand in front of the brand. And that's a bold choice to make in an industry where that typically isn't the case. Was there any fear associated with that decision? Of course, there's always fear, right? There's the fear of getting into entrepreneurship. There's fear of getting outside of the traditional structure because many of us were very successful within that framework, right? But that is a machine. It is a grinder. It has been built over generations. And even those of us who were extremely talented were still cogs in the overall machine, right? And some of us are bigger cogs than others, right? But many of us are just cogs as part of that machine. So there was a ton of fear. But like you said, I don't know if it was the fear of putting myself in front because putting myself, and not necessarily myself, but somebody that represents a community, not necessarily as represented in the world of whiskey, that was a big part of what I wanted to do. Working in great restaurants and dining in great restaurants all over the country and all over the world, there's a real shortage of representation for people who look like me. And a large part of my business ethos is to pull in as many people as possible, right? And representation matters. So when people who are Black and Brown see me in these spaces, it makes them feel just a little bit more comfortable with taking that step into these spaces. Being seen is huge. I was listening to this interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he talked about like the single biggest, and he said, I've never been a man that talked about race because in my life, that's not what served me well. What served me well was seeing African-Americans in science, just the sheer sight of them inspired me and opened my mind to the possibilities that I had not yet explored. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly that there is power in simply being there and in being the first there and starting that conversation. But that's not always an easy conversation to have. I think within the South, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge. You live in the South. And then also within the industry at large. So how do you broach that conversation in a way that people are willing to receive that information? My answer is probably two-parted on that. One is because of the forward nature of the brand and who I am and what I do, the people who engage me tend to be the people who are more open to having those conversations off the rip, right? Which makes it really easy to get into. Those people are curious because a lot of people, they see Many of the trends that I talk about in whiskey, they've seen them in other areas of the world and other industries. And when you start to hear that some of these challenges exist in the whiskey world, it's like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. And here's this guy who studies this. So let me talk to him and see if I can learn more about it. Where 
I sometimes find myself having uh, more interesting conversations, so to speak, is in the world of social media marketing, you have to put yourself out there, right? And behind the screen of a computer, God, man, people are willing to say some very interesting things. And, you know, social media wisdom says that you have to really temper yourself as far as what you're going to engage in, both for my own personal sanity, also as a business owner. But those awkward conversations tend to happen a lot more often from people on Instagram and Facebook. And frankly, who knows if they're even actually people, right? Or bots running around trying to troll. So I guess that's a long answer to say that I give those people very little of my time because if you start off a conversation by identifying that you are closed-minded, there's very little point in either one of us pursuing that, right? We're going to waste both of our time. So let's just call it a day. But it's hard. I mean, when you put yourself out there through this media platform, I've put myself out there. And you know, when somebody doesn't like your food, you can just dismiss them. They have a gutter palate, right? It's not a value <laughs> judge, right? Same with the drink, right? It's not a value judgment on you. It's a value judgment on something that you made. But I think one of the biggest hurdles for us as restaurant owners and operators, as hospitality professionals, is we put our stuff out there before we put us out there because it's difficult when people are critical of you as a human being. And so obviously that's something you've learned to deal with, but how? How do you not take it personally? How do you persevere? Because I mean, I can tell you, man, I've been doing this several years now. Any slight, it takes the wind out of my sails. It's hard to dismiss. It's hard to rally. Can't imagine I'm alone. You've been at this just as long or longer. How do you deal with the criticism? Uh, God, uh, talking about black stuff in big rooms has never been the most popular conversation, depending <laughs> on which room that you find yourself in. And uh, a lot of people say that that's a Southern thing. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I was born and raised in New York. And if you stand in your average room and you start talking about anything black related, you're always going to find a certain number of the population who are going to get reflexively uncomfortable. So I guess I say all of that to say I've been having these types of conversations my entire life. I love black history, love black people, love black things. But I throughout most of my life have found myself navigating spaces that were very much integrated and often very white. Like I grew up going to a private school in Brooklyn, New York, right? So just through repeated awkward conversations over the years, it gave me the practice that I needed to get to this point where talking about specific Black issues and Black successes within the whiskey world in a lot of ways, it's it's easy for me, right? Because to your point, if you have a problem, somebody says, hey, this burger is trash and you know it's amazing, you say, okay, that person has a gutter palate, right? And if I'm out here celebrating the accomplishments of new Black whiskey owners and you're the person to be out here pissing in the punch bowl and saying, well, you know, why are we talking about race and whiskey? Well, I mean, my conversation to you is what why are I mean we've been talking about race and whiskey for years, right? 
you just don't understand that. And if this makes you uncomfortable, then man, uh, your mind is as gutter as the palate of somebody who does enjoy that delicious burger, you know? So it is what it is. Let's talk about audience. Audience is important because you choose your audience and then you can cater directly to their needs. And the more narrow you go, the more successful you could potentially be. Who is your audience? Who did you choose as your audience? My audience are people who are whiskey curious. And that is a huge swath of people right now. Um, a lot of people think that the bourbon world has been popular for decades and decades and decades. And the reality is, you know, being a restaurateur, that's not true at all. Bourbon has been on a tear in the last 10 years, which is to say that there's a lot of people who are curious, but don't know anything about it. Right. So when I started this business, my goal was to hit that crowd, to hit people who are whiskey curious. Right. But aren't going to have access to some of the crazy stuff that they hear about out there. Why? Because the demand for whiskey is greatly outpacing the supply at this point. So helping to educate people to make informed decisions, to draw in as many people as possible, that was my goal. And I guess that's both a very broad and specific because that encompasses a number of demographics. What I found is that most of the people who are into what I do are in the 35 to 44 year old range, which is I'm right smack in the middle of. So that makes sense. But it's been an even split of men and women, which has been fantastic. Frankly, I think female whiskey drinkers are a lot more fun to drink with at the end of the day. So I love it. Of course, big in the black and brown community, also the LGBTQ community, right? Because that is a community that is never, never really brought into the world of whiskey. And so just making people understand that drinks can be inclusive, right? You know that in the restaurant world, we assign gender and race to drinks and food in ways that are utterly absurd. And just getting people to be comfortable getting outside of that framework, that's everything to me. I hated it when I was in the industry. I hated dealing with it, right? When I was bartending, you come up to me if you're a dude and you say, hey, I want a girly drink. I'd pour whiskey in a glass, put it down on the table in front of them and say, hey, man, in my house, this is a girly drink. So you're going to need to be a little more clear. I mean, that encompasses me and everything I do. I want to talk about education because I can't tell you how many, especially in the earlier stages of my career, how many pre-shifts I presided over where I just watched everyone's eyes glaze over, right? Even now with the restaurant coaching I do, as valuable as I found pre-shifts once I got good at hosting them. You meet restaurant owners and operators, bar owners and operators all the time and say, oh, you know, pre-shifts, we do those when we get time. They're really not worth anything. Nobody listens. And they don't listen because it's boring. And it's boring because you are presenting the information in a boring way. Education, by and large, is not sexy. But it can be fun and it can be interesting and it can be stimulating and it can be enriching and it can turn what is, albeit a mediocre job for many, on their transitional path to whatever is next. It can turn it into a roadmap, into a path, into a life skill. Talk to me about your curriculum and education and how you developed it in a way that was meaningful for you and the people you educated. 
Well, I love that you bring in pre-shifts, right? Because as you know, if you're good at this, pre-shifts are everything at a restaurant, right? 90% of the job is done before the first customer sits down. And an effective pre-shift can be everything, right? Because you don't see your servers but so many hours a day. And that's that's a lot of how I structure my curriculum for this business, right? It came from the education that we did in wine. I once worked at a place where every Friday we had a wine presentation and one of the servers would go and we'd assign them a bottle and we'd give them a nice little breakout sheet. Here's the information we want you to look up and they would present and we would taste that bottle. And I'm telling you, everybody was early for that pre-shift, ready to rock, right? And invariably you would see bottle sales spike, right? Because it inspires confidence in their ability to sell both that individual bottle or that bridal, that style, whatever. So empowering people to be part of that educational process is everything. I tell folks all the time, part of why I'm very hesitant to do videos, ironically, is I hate the sound of my voice when I hear it recorded. So (laughs) when I'm educating people, like, yes, there's the side of I'm going to have to do a fair amount of talking, but I want to break that up, right? I want people to be involved. I want to taste things. I want to get up. I want to move around. You want to bring energy into the room that makes people get excited about it. Because if you're not excited about the subject material, when you talk to somebody, nobody else will be. And that's why I do whiskey, because I am very excited about drinking and sharing these stories with people. Because as you know, the stories for everything in the food world are almost as good as the food and drinks. I want to talk about your consulting practice. So you educate for quite a while and then eventually you get into consulting, which is just this natural evolution. What does your typical client look like? What do they need? How big of a restaurant or bar concept is it? And what services are you typically providing? So I started small. A lot of restaurateurs in this area realized that the whiskey craze was booming and that their staff knew nothing about whiskey, right? If you have servers who can't tell the difference between a rye and a bourbon, let alone a barrel proof for a bottled in bond or a finished bourbon, you are missing out on sales. So a lot of handful of restaurateurs would bring me in and they would say, hey, I want you to do a two hour session with my team. You can pour whatever you need from the bar, give them some history, give them some technical knowledge. So I started there and then started to branch out more into the cocktail recipe world, right? So people who are looking to jazz up their whole brand from a cocktail perspective. Uh, Durham is a small town, but it is a town that has a lot of fantastic F&B operations. In fact, we have two bars here that in the past two years have been nominated for James Beard Awards, one of which came as a runner-up, right? So the cocktail game in this town is no joke. And there were a handful of people who realized that, hey, man, I need to step my game up. I can't make excuses for not having delicious, fun and on trend cocktails in a town where my next door neighbor just got nominated for a James Beard Award. Right. Ten years ago, you might have assumed like, hey, nobody's looking at Durham. What's going on? You snap your fingers. Everybody's getting priced out of L.A., San Francisco, New York. 
And we down here knew that Durham was awesome for years, right? But now the rest of the country is starting to figure it out and starting to give everybody their flowers. And it's causing everybody to want to step their game up across the board. So people who need assistance with cocktail recipes, education, staff training is a large part of what I do on the consulting side of things, since that's naturally within my wheelhouse. But I was a general manager who ran a place that was doing between five to seven million dollars a year, right? So there's very little on the system side of things that I can't assist people with. And I certainly have, right? Setting up POS systems, implementing PAR sheets, you name it. So as I had mentioned previously, I've been in every tier of dining. And what it's done is it's made me a great customer for the people I'm standing in front of and a terrible customer because I see everything everything. Every restaurant I walk into, I start working, right? They need to fix that light bulb and that's dirty. And they're not using wobble wedges. The tables are being held up by napkins, all of these little things you see. And on the beverage side, there's a lot of that as well. And so as both a consultant and as a patron and an aficionado of booze, what do most folks get wrong? When you look at most independent owners and operators, What do they get wrong when it comes to their beverage programs? I think it's knowing your crowd, right? Because when you open up a restaurant, you have an idea of what you want it to be. But a lot of new restaurateurs find out in the first year that your market is going to dictate a lot of what you need to do, right? And so in restaurants, we, to some extent, hate customer feedback, right? Because most of it's stupid. The person who sits down and they say, hey, you know what you should have on your menu? Like, I, I, I don't care what you think I should have on the menu, right? But we should care to some extent, right? So there's your brand and there's what you're going for. So if you open an Indian restaurant, then you should have Indian food on that menu, right? But if you find that people are not ordering the things that you have on that menu, figure out why, hold on to your core values, right? But then understand what your customers need. So there are so many places where people's beverage menus don't at all reflect the guests that they have. Sometimes it's doing too much, right? Like I've been to restaurants where it was a fast casual style in terms of food, but then they had cocktails that were 12 touch cocktails so fast casual food hitting the table in eight minutes first cocktail hitting the table in 12 that doesn't work so make sure that your beverage brand matches your food brand and that's really not that hard to do also you can find incredible quality it doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice in the taste right you just have to be knowledgeable enough to make inform decisions and you can do really well. You know, I also think less is more. You mentioned execution in a 12-touch cocktail. I think there's this compulsion to have 10, 12, 15 cocktails on a menu when your team might not have the capacity for that. And if you scale back to four, five, six cocktails that are truly amazing, right, that your team can make it a fast clip consistently, that's what people want. I don't think that people want everything. I think they want the best of everything. And you're the arbitrator of taste, not them. 
Does that make sense? I mean, 100%. Also, if your bartenders are well-trained, you put six highly creative things that are representative of your style on your cocktail menu and know that they're going to be riffing all of the time anyway, right? Because somebody's going to want to come in and they're going to ask for a Manhattan. So don't put a Manhattan on your menu, right? Just know that your team can make a dynamite Manhattan. Know that they know their way between the rise and the vermouths, right? But you never put that on your menu unless you just say, hey, I'm going to put a classic cocktail menu here on the side. So those of us who need our memory jogged when we sit down, in case you can't remember what a martini is, oh, here it is, right? But no, I love what you're saying. And ditto for a wine list. I joke, and this is no shade to Cheesecake Factory, right? But my mother-in-law loves Cheesecake Factory. And whenever I go to Cheesecake Factory, I get overwhelmed because I feel like I'm reading the Bible. It's just, and I'm glad they have pictures because it helps, but that's too much for me, right? Give me four to six solid items, uh, ditto for food menus. And then that way it gives me the confidence that those things are going to be good, right? Because we know that even if all you have is six cocktails, one of those is going to be less good than the others, right? Sure. So when you push that number up to 12, All you're doing is increasing the number of bad products. They're not bad, right? But things that will be perceived to be of lesser quality than the winners. When you rein that in, if you hit five out of six that are bangers, then everybody's going to love you. Right. And to push even further on that, if you are able to execute 12 cocktails well or even really well, it's hard to compete because people want great. People want mind-blowing. Like part of the experience, one of the things that I've always committed to is if you're going to have an old fashioned on the menu, it needs to be priced north of $20. And if not, there's no point in having one on there. And they're like, well, what does a $20 old fashioned look like? And I'm like, it's up to you, but it better be worth the money. If you're going to have a cocktail on your menu that people would normally call for, then it needs to be spectacular. 1000%. Yeah, what that look, I went to uh, Willet Distillery and had lunch at the bar this summer. I strongly recommend, of course, their bourbon is fantastic, do the tour, but their food program and their drink program is spectacular. And when we sat down, the waitress said, hey, so here's our cocktail list, but I'm going to tell you, we have a life-changing whiskey sour. And I was like, oh, life-changing whiskey sour? Like, Right. Tell me point, everything. It, yeah. Tell me everything. If you're right. going to put a whiskey sour right front and center. Sure. And I mean, they pulled out a coupe and they chilled that bad boy down with nitrous on the bar. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. They pulled out all the stops. Was it life changing? No. But will I forever remember that presentation at the Willet Bar? Damn right. Right, because great isn't always defined by flavor. It can be a great experience with a really good drink. And Mm -hmm. that works for me as well. It does. It does. The service was great. The experience was great. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you a thousand percent. Let's talk about low-hanging fruit. So when I typically go into a restaurant that needs support, one of the first things I look at is I do a benchmarking audit and we begin working on pricing just to make sure that they're at the top of the market, because why not? And we can just improve everything to compensate for those increases in price. But for you, from the beverage side, right? There's always low hanging fruit. There are like three or four things that when you walk into a place, they're the first three or four things you look at to improve. 
What are those things and what do you do to improve them? First thing I do at literally every restaurant I walk into that wants me to work on their beverage program is look at whether their bartenders are jigger pouring and measuring all of their drinks. Because if they are not and their management is not willing to enforce that thing, then I'm going to walk out of the door, right? Because I can talk to you until I am blue in the face. But if you're not willing to measure out drinks, both for consistency of product, flavor, and for potential for loss, and not even potential for loss, you and I know if we are free pouring at a bar, you are losing money hand over foot and you are making drinks that are unbalanced, right? Because it's all about ratio. So it starts there with instilling good habits in the team because you can give them great recipes. You can give them costing sheets that say, hey, here are the markers that you need to hit. But it's all about the people and the execution and the willingness of the team to understand the direction change that we're going the management team to follow up on that. So it's almost like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the dog whisperer back in the day, Mm -hmm. you spend so much time training the people, right? And not just the staff, training the management, getting them to understand that consistency in execution is the way to do it every single day. If we want to get at it and if we want to be as good as we can be in this industry. It's huge. Anthony Bourdain said, consistency is the religion of the industry. And I think he's 100% right there. I want to talk about you as a national brand. So I found you through LinkedIn because you're all over LinkedIn. In an industry where nobody's particularly concerned with social media, you are using it as a platform to have a conversation, which is exciting and really interesting. And I followed you for quite a while and then stalked your inbox until you finally agreed to be on the show. (laughs) True story for everybody listening. Because I thought that it's really important that you are using social media in the way that it was intended. It is a two-way or multi-way conversation. You are not broadcasting. It is not just a one-way message out to the world. You are attempting to connect and connect in an authentic way. And that's not particularly easy to do. So I'm wondering, were there models that you follow? Were there other people you looked to and said, when I produce media to develop my brand nationally, these are the people I'm going to look to? Well, one, thank you. That was a a hell of an introduction. I really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes and no. I was looking all over the place, honestly, because I did not and still do not consider myself to be a particularly socially social media savvy person, if you will. And so I looked at a handful of brands that I thought were authentic in the way that they were doing things, right? A lot of them are Black brands because you want to know how to navigate and be successful as a Black brand myself, right? And there are a lot of Black brands out there that are having like I mentioned at the beginning, the same conversations that I'm having, but just in different industries, right? So I think this is true of a lot of people who were born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I don't think that being genuine is a difficult thing for me, right? And sometimes that's a bad thing. Uh, (laughs) But for the purposes of this business, it's something that has been really easy to do. And 
like I mentioned earlier, when we talked about the different types of people with whom I engage, it's a conversation that I'm seeing over and over again that people are ready for, right? In 2015, the New York Times did their article on Uncle Nearest and the whole Jack Daniels thing, right? And it invigorated a whole bunch of us to get out there, right? And like the Times or don't like the Times, they do things that they know people are ready to get all over. So it started a conversation that has just been rolling and rolling and rolling. And it's invigorated so many different people, myself included, to just get out and be part of this conversation, to have fun, to tell stories, and to drink whiskey. So I think that this brand is not hard at all to be authentic in because, I mean, if you can't authentically tell fun stories about people who could have been your ancestors while drinking whiskey, I question whether you are capable of having fun at all. What does winning look like? When you look at 2023, what are the goals that you've set for yourself, for your business? To continue to grow. I've been very blessed in my first two years. Uh, we just passed a two-year threshold in November, and there's been significant growth, especially after I stepped out of the restaurant. I started this as a side hustle. So while I was still GM at a place and I have two kids, I decided in the middle of a pandemic to pick up a side gig. So I was running crazy and only had but so much time that I could commit to this in the very beginning. Year two was fantastic. And so I look forward to one, I think the biggest step on winning would be if I can hire somebody else to help me with the business, right? Because when you're in the entrepreneur world, you have a struggle to spend more time working on your business and a little less time in your business. So I certainly want to get to that point, which will allow me to be a lot more creative. One of the biggest projects that I'm working on right now is developing my own line of cocktail syrups, which you know, that takes a fair amount of time of R&D and all that good stuff and getting with co-packers and getting your product approved and then getting labels. done, And it's all great stuff, right? So being able to be successful with that project. And then I've got some other things on the back burner that I'm not quite ready to let out yet. But uh, just... Uh, continuing to spread the gospel, right? The cocktail world is truly for everybody. That whiskey is for everybody. That you can drink whatever it is that you want and enjoy it and have fun. And if you're interested in being more educated about all these things, I'm here for you, right? But for some people, that's not always the goal, which is why my mantra is first and foremost, drink what it is that you like. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think the biggest thing that I would like to see for the industry is to improve consistency and pay. I am a firm believer that if you as a business require a person in order for you to make money and for your business to thrive, then you need to pay that person a livable wage, right? There's no such thing as an entry-level job. I always hated that as a manager in the restaurant industry, right? Because you get a 
great host that comes in the door and I say, hey, I want to hire this person and I want to pay them $15 an hour. And I have a director of ops who's looking at me like, you want to pay a host $15 an hour? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this is the first person that people see when they come in the door. This is the person that when I'm over here as the GM talking to this table, who's losing their mind about a dish that took, you know, eight minutes instead of seven minutes. This is the person who's really masterminding this whole dining room. And you want me to pay them less than $15 an hour? Like, frankly, I think that number should be a little bit higher. That's Che Ramos. For more information on Che, visit blackbourbonguy.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.